Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to Bold Leaders in Learning. I'm Brandon Busty, president of University Partners of Kaplan. And as many of you know today, I'm boldly going where I have never gone before on this show uh, and have invited my boss, Andy Rosen, who's the chairman and CEO of Kaplan to join me today. In all honesty, I'm really excited to have him on the show and have this conversation. He and I were joking that in many respects, the conversation we're gonna have today about the future of higher education is pretty much consistent with what we do on our bi-weekly calls together is talking about the future of higher education. So we're going to kind of let you inside of that uh, discussion today. And uh, Andy, thanks for joining. We are, um, we're coming up on the 10th, almost 10th anniversary of your book, change.edu. And, uh, and so, you know, obviously we're going to spend most of the time talking about that, reflections on what you said there, predictions that have or haven't come true. But, uh, but I think it would be great to just start with a quick, uh, you know, understanding of your own background. You've been at Kaplan for a long time. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your career and uh, trajectory, anniversary of your book. Yeah, Gene. well, um, I should start with, uh, you know, my, my college, because you and I went to the same school. We're both uh, Duke guys. Um, I went on to law school, and after that, I clerked for a judge for a year. And, in, you know, while I was clerking, I decided I did not want to go to a law firm. And I looked around and managed somehow to, to find a great role as a lawyer with the Washington Post, the newspaper. And that was an incredible experience. And from there, I ended up going to Newsweek as a lawyer. Newsweek is owned by the Washington Post Company at the time. And spent uh, four years at Newsweek as a lawyer before uh, flipping over to Kaplan, which also was and continues to be owned by Washington Post Company or successor company, Graham Holdings. So I've been at, you know, I've been at Kaplan for a long time. I've been at uh, the Graham Holdings Company and Washington Post Company for even longer. Yeah, it's amazing. I know I've heard you say it before, but you feel like you've had many different careers, uh, and yet, you know, technically speaking, have worked for the same organization for uh, for most of that. And it's true, you know, the the broad, diverse, global nature of Kaplan and uh, and the various other companies that are part of the Graham Holdings. Uh, it's fascinating. There's never uh, there's never a dull moment. There's always something new to learn. So. Yeah, That's Kaplan has changed too. so much over the years. I mean, when I when I started, there was a, a tiny money losing test prep company, and it's now a you know big, broad, global uh, brand that you know people know just as well in you know Singapore or Australia or New Zealand, uh, or you know throughout uh, Asia and Africa as as well as people might know it in Boston or Washington D.C. Yeah, so uh, so we'll come back at the end and maybe uh, catch up on a couple other Kaplan updates. But uh, I want to turn back to change.edu. Um, you know, 10 years since the book, uh, got a lot of great reviews when it came out. And, um, and there were a lot of predictions about the future. Why don't you just catch us up, though, on kind of your summary of what's happened in the last 10 years across higher ed? Well, yeah, the, a quick summary of what's happened. I mean, so much has happened in higher ed over the course of uh, the last 10 years. You know, one thing I, th I would specifically note is uh, when, I was, when I was writing the book, people really associated online learning with the for-profit sector. There was not, um, in fact, the traditional higher education system uh, was, was largely, not exclusively, but largely hostile to the notion that you could educate a student online. It was, the, the criticism was pretty withering. And so when you think about how far we've come over the course of the last decade, it's, it's quite remarkable because uh, even if online isn't embraced by everyone, it is certainly accepted by everyone, I would say, in American higher ed. And that's a big change. 
But you know, if I think about what's happened most, you know, what's happened in the last 10 years, you really got to focus first on what's happened in the last eight months because over, you know, I don't think any of us, and we've talked about this brand, I don't think any of us could have imagined that America's higher ed system could make a change, really fundamentally changing its educational model and its business model in what amounted to a week, you know, I mean, for, for most, basically over spring break. Yep. And I think actually what the, what the, the higher ed system did was remarkable. You know, I mean, it's interesting because the sort of public perception sometimes, and certainly within the, the, the trade press, it's all about what went wrong, you know, and, and Zoom you and it, things were not perfect. It's not this, it's not exactly the same. And I, you know, what about my dining hall program? And so you're talking about taking away the core of what schools have thought of as the, as their environment in instantly and shifting to an entirely new modality. And faculty made that change and administrators made that change and tech support made that change. I, I think it's just a, a fantastic story about what American higher ed is capable of. And if I, were a, if I were the president of a university, I would be spending every day talking to my faculty, my administration and saying, look what you did. Look how fantastic this is. Can we bottle this up and keep doing it? Like right. if we could have the same level of uh, energy and innovation and ad adaptivity uh, on an ongoing basis that we've had over the last eight months, American higher ed would be off the charts. So I think what we saw just in the last you know, uh, eight months is what the system is capable of. And I'm hoping, and I think there's, a, there's a, you know, some reason to think that it will look a little more like the the rapidly changing nimble environment that we've just seen, as opposed to the slower moving, you know, uh, system that, that people often talk about. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad, glad you brought it up because, if, if, you know, in asking about the last decade, you, you can put a lot into the last eight months, right? And, and to think too about, uh, you and I've talked about this a little bit as well, all the innovation that's happening on what I'll call a micro level as well, like in, in the classroom, right? Zoom, whatever the framework is, right? Between faculty and students, the ways, you know, that necessity, right? Is the mother of all invention kind of thing, right? We were forced into this, but then to see the innovation, simple examples, you know, I interviewed a faculty member on this show a couple of weeks ago who just basically created her own new software platform to enhance communication. So it feels like a real classroom, right? And she did it because she wanted that to happen in her classroom. So she just made it, right? And then, you know, one of our favorite folks uh, that, that many people know at Duke, Tony Brown, you know, he's, he's teaching on Zoom, but he's so excited because now he's able to bring alumni into his classes, you know, multiple alumni into the conversation where before he'd have to have them, you know, book it as a travel schedule, fly down to campus, you know, all that kind of stuff like that. So I, I just sprinkle a few of these things in to say that you're right. It is amazing to see this, right? Although there have been some downsides to it and lots of complaints, this is the time to kind of hold that innovation up as something to, to really encourage more of and to not, you know, this expression of, you know, getting back to normal or the new normal. For higher ed, I don't, I don't know that we should have the goal of getting back to normal, right? Was normal always that great? So, you know, as a segue, right, uh, you made a lot of predictions in, in Change EDU. In fact, you, you were forecasting out a good 25 years in the book. You talked about uh, what you called the seven certainties in the last chapter of the book. 
um, you know, I, I could maybe give you a grade, you know, uh, my own report card, but I'm hesitant to do that with my boss. I would love you to tell us, you know, where, where did you nail it? Uh, what things might, you know, you have missed, uh, you know, reflecting on now and, uh, and, and some of those things, obviously, you know, another 15 years out may still be very viable, but, uh, what, uh, what, what's your sense of, uh, of your prediction on that? Yeah, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, uh, project over 25 years because I was trying to punt on the on the issue, but because higher ed does evolve over an extended period of time. You know, in fact, a couple, you know, a couple of weeks ago when, when uh, Apple came out with the iPhone 12, like the next day, I saw an article saying, here's what's expected in the iPhone 13. I'm like, man, oh man, like, like, that's not how higher ed typically operates. It's like very methodical. Let's get one foot in front of the other. Um, but over time, uh, it does change. And, and really the heart of, of my book was an historical look at higher ed and, and a, a look at um, how the various sectors of higher ed emerged. Uh, you know, started really, the book starts in 1636 uh, with the founding of Harvard and goes all the way through, you know, the um, traditional uh, uh, schools and then, and then land grant schools and the innovation and the hostility towards land grant schools and then the evolution of, of community colleges uh, and the, what the model is and what the incentives are for each of these sectors and then the for-profit sector. And you know what, it, what, it, what I was trying to convey is uh, higher education has a rich history of innovation, um, but it, it happens over the fullness of time. So the seven certainties that we talked about, I mean, I talked about, you know, in 25 years, um, uh, higher ed will be more mobile, It'll, you know, which obviously it is becoming, I mean, meaning you don't have to go to a place to experience it. You can experience it where you are. And that's basically all of almost all of higher ed right now. Right. Um, that it's be more disaggregated. You know, people don't always think about the fact that one institution tends to, you know, it teaches you all the clout courses, you can't pick and choose among different institutions, but it also uh, credentializes. Uh, if it's a, a residential college, it, it feeds and, you know, in, in the houses and entertains you. I mean, and you have to buy the entire bundle if you want any part of it. And over time, that, that will start to break up. You can see a bit of it in the MOOCs. You know, the MOOCs actually didn't exist when I wrote the book, but, the, but I I wrote about the concept of MOOCs, but it, they, they didn't yet exist at the time. Um, I talked about how learning would be more personalized. Uh, there'd be more focus on learning outcomes. Uh, it'd be more accessible. It'd be more uh, global and it'd be cooler. You know, that there are a lot of things that technology would enable. Yeah. And I talked about all these things. I would say that we're moving at a steady pace along all of them, but I. Ironically, I think we're we're moving more slowly on things like the focus on learning outcomes, the personalization of education. You would think that that would be because it, it is the core of what a university does that, that we would have made the most progress on that. I feel like we are actually lagging on those two elements relative to the others. Yeah, it's interesting you point that out. I mean, obviously on the on the broad set of the seven certainties, right? Like a lot, a lot of those trends are playing out. You know, some much quicker than others. Uh, but you know, I think that was a that was a pretty good forecast into where we are today and where we're going. But you're right. You know, on the on the learning outcomes, a focus on personalized learning. I mean, I feel like 
you know, the last 10 years of the ASU GSV conference, was, which is about how long it's been going. Uh, like every session is about personalized education, yeah. AI powered learning, like, you know, and so, so you would think that this, I don't know, the, the, the massive investment in ed tech and software solutions and other things that have really been focused on that would have brought us much further than we are now. But you're right. I mean, we're kind of stuck in, the, in the, there aren't many people that would tell you that higher education from a learning outcome perspective is more efficacious today than it was 30 or 50 years ago, right? I mean, I don't know if they'd say it's worse, but, but I don't hear people saying, oh yeah, you know, we are much better at, at the delivery of teaching, right? Than we were, you know, half a century ago. So I like, right. how, do, how do you think we break out of that? Like, yeah. or, or do we? And I think that's the right way of thinking about it. Is a student who's graduated from a university today better educated than somebody who graduated 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago? And I, I think it's, it's hard to make that, um, that argument. And in fact, the research around it suggests, if anything, maybe the, the, you know, the opposite, although you know, these are hard things to compare. I, I, I don't want to, um, I mean, I'm sure there are people who are listening to this who are thinking, well, wait a second, on my campus, this is happening, or I'm working on this, and it's actually really cool. And that, is, that may well be true. Like, there, there are a lot of great experiments going on. There, there are a lot of faculty who are really doing interesting things. The question is really, when does it seep into the model? It's such right. that every student is getting, getting the benefit. And, you know, technology does permit, uh, you know, a lot more use of data to inform instruction. Uh, you, you mentioned a, a great example of, uh, you know, you, you talked about Tony Brown, but like you can bring experts from around the world right into your classroom when you deliver something online. You're limited to who can actually show up in you know Lansing, Michigan, or Durham, North Carolina, or wherever, when in a traditional classroom. So, I think people are seeing the world open up. There are web exercises and, and programs that you can you can use for students and simulations that technology will permit that will start to really advance uh, personalized learning and ultimately learning outcomes. And I would just note that one of the problems with traditional education is each faculty member. Uh, has his or her um, curriculum and outcomes. Whereas typically in, in a well-designed online program, you get a number of, of faculty members and instructional designers and, and so on together to create a course with common outcomes. So you can start to compare who's doing better, who's doing worse. And, and the comparison serves not just as a way of you know, scolding, but as a way of, um, helping everyone improve like once you know you know right. like any athlete or dancer or whatever like you need somebody to say you see how this person's doing you need to do a little more like that and it's a way of improving and it's, i think i think technology enables us to capture what's going on both in terms of what's happening at the time and the, the underlying data that says how students are, are performing as a result yeah you know, it's, I mean, we, we, you and I have seen plenty of incredible technologies or other innovations that just haven't, haven't progressed because of other issues, right? Policies, you know, deeply held beliefs that, you know, just are ingrained in a culture of an institution, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things that can hold it back. We actually got a question from uh, one of the folks joining us right now about, you know, in your mind, uh, you know, what are the, what are the major reasons why 
you know, it takes a full-blown crisis to drive the type of innovation that we're seeing in higher ed, right? Like, what are the what are the real barriers? Like you talked about incentives in your book. I mean, is that still, you know, one of those? But uh, like, what would you say are the the big reasons why it, it takes a, in some cases, a real catastrophe to to drive innovation across higher ed? Well, I could, you know, I could say this in a, you know, positive way or a negative way, but I, you know, I sometimes said like sometime in the, I don't know if it was the 1930s or 40s or something, like higher ed decided that it was perfection, you know, that it was the the best possible way of educating people. And once you've decided your perfection, that any change is necessarily worse. You know, so uh, there's there's sort of a, an inherent belief that that something that is different is probably worse. Now, it's not that it's necessarily worse, but it's probably worse. And that sort of uh, presses back against um, against innovation in higher ed. On the other hand, you know, uh, you don't you don't necessarily want uh, Harvard, you know, uh, 12 and then to Harvard 13, Harvard 14 with complete pivots and total change, because there is something special about what happens on a traditional college campus and you want to preserve it. But you, you know, higher ed is not immune from, you know, opportunity to, to grow. But I think there are some and this is, you know, as you say, in my in, in change that EDU, I talked a lot about the incentives that exist in a, on a campus. Um, and there are different incentives, whether, you know, for a, a traditional school, for a public school, for a community college, and for for-profit institutions. And none of them, and this is, you know, a key point in the book, none of those incentive systems really align with what our society needs. They're all different from what society thinks it's getting in, in key ways, and none of them aligns perfectly. Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the segues from like the, you know, the barriers, the things that are holding it back. I mean, I, I, I like your point about, you know, if you view yourself as perfect or as the best or whatever, right, it's harder to kind of evaluate where, you know, where you could change. And, you know, that's a that's an interesting concept. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But I do, I, I think, you know, higher ed suffers from that. As it, as it relates to innovation, though, right, back on this subject of, of how innovation happens, where, where do you see innovation now in higher education, right? Like, where is it coming from? What are the most promising things or, or I'll say people or, or stuff? So I'm just curious where, where innovation lives right now in the higher ed sector in your mind. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I've always felt like innovation comes from a sense of either opportunity or a sense of fear. Right. That's where, you know, and, and, you know, you you said it earlier, you said necessity is the mother of invention. It's a way of saying the same thing. The reason that Apple innovates the iPhone each year is because there's opportunity, big opportunity, if they can develop a, a, a better product. Um, in higher ed, uh, because of this sense of, of conservatism, and by that I don't mean political conservatism, obviously, but that things should unless there's a good reason otherwise, remain the same, uh, that sense of opportunity is muffled because anytime you try to try something, there's always going to be people who say, don't do that, you're diluting the quality or this, you know. And so uh, fear has really, I think, um, driven uh, innovation in higher ed to, to a large extent. And increasingly, you know, I think that's definitely what happened 
on March 11th or 12th, you know, was fear. Right. We're out of business unless we adapt. And so, you know, universities adapted very quickly. I think coming out of the pandemic, uh, we're going to see an acceleration of a dynamic that's existed for a while, which is um, the financial models of a lot of institutions are, are going to be very strained. And that's going to enable institutions to do something um, very different. Having said that, if you go back through the history of higher ed, many of the great innovations have come because individuals uh, have led organizations to becoming to becoming special. And you know, I mean, Justin Morrow would be a great example of that. In that, you know, he wasn't in the higher ed system, but he was in Congress and helped uh, drive the, the land grant act. But you know, you, so you, you you talk about people, you know, that that. Uh, we know well. I mean, obviously, Mitch Daniels at Purdue, um, he has taken a, a, a university that already is, uh, you know, I think was innovative and uh, sort of ahead of the curve and and focused it on, um, well, I guess I'd say about Mitch Daniels, about Michael Crow, about, uh, you know, Nathan Hatch is somebody we work with. These are people who have somehow extricated themselves from feeling like they have to follow what the sort of the next highest ranked institution is in, in the firm. And instead said, wait a second, what are we here for? What is our purpose? You know, why do we exist? And, um, you know, in the case of, of Purdue, Purdue's a land grant institution. And Mitch yeah. Daniels has said, our job is to serve the, the people of Indiana and the economy of Indiana and the country as a whole. And we're going to focus on what advances those goals. I think Michael Crow has, had, has said the same thing. He wants Arizona State to look like the state of Arizona, and he wants everybody who goes there to have comparable learning outcomes. Meaning, demographically, uh, he doesn't want you know some populations to underperform relative to others. Well, once you start thinking about your job like that, as opposed to how can I be ranked a little, you know, a little bit higher in the next U.S. news rankings. Well, that drives innovation because what Michael Crow is trying to accomplish or Mitch Dale is trying to accomplish can't be done the old way. You've got to say to people, "This is the goal," and you're going to have to. We're, we're collectively going to have to figure out a way to get there. And that's what really institutions that are, are most innovative, to me, are the institutions that know where they want to go, and are focused on that goal, not on all this, the incentives to become, you know, uh, more selective or have faculties, you know, that has, uh, um, you know, bigger credentials and so on. I mean, I really, Brandon, I would push this question to you because you actually, you know, when you came to Kaplan, one of the things you said right from the start was, I want to only, uh, you know, because obviously we work with um, lots of universities. But you said, I only want to work with universities that have innovative leaders, ambitious leaders that want to grow. And so you actually have the best job in higher ed, which is to go out and talk to the coolest, most interesting, most dynamic leaders. I mean, where do you think innovation is, co is coming from? Yeah, well, you know, you, you made an interesting distinction earlier about how you see innovation coming from two sources, right? The fear or the, you know, the, the necessity is the mother of all invention side or the opportunity side. And as I was listening, you reflect on, you know, the Michael Crows and the issues and the Mitch Daniels and the Purdue's and a Nathan Hatch and Wake Forest, right? Those are all 
individuals that I would call opportunity-driven leaders yes. and institutions that, by the way, were all brand name institutions, right? Before, you know, those, uh, those three leaders in particular, it wasn't like they were, you know, just like, you know, not even on the radar. Um, but but they, they looked at the opportunity to grow, right? Opportunities to serve more students, right? Where could they go in ways that were different from the rest of higher education as opposed to mimicking it? And, and that's honestly where I think, you know, as much as I'm, I'm happy to see the innovation coming from necessity and from fear, right? Like I think that, you know, but, but to think about, and this is my encouragement to universities now is as fast as they can get out of the fear-driven innovation cycle, right? Even though it might be healthy and something that, that is needed, to try to put some energy towards the opportunity innovation side of things. Like one of the things I've worried about most in the last eight months for all leaders of all organizations, but especially higher ed is just simply the fact that we're so consumed with, with the issues of the day, right? In the moment, right? Just trying to stay afloat. Pandemic, racial issues like we've never seen, a political climate that's as contentious as it's ever been. I mean, you can go on and on and on, right? And, and so what happens is there's very little time for leaders to reflect. There's very little time for leaders to look over the horizon, right? And where I see universities really moving in that opportunity side of things is they've actually carved out time and place and positions for innovation, right? So for example, Wake Forest has an innovation committee on their board of trustees. They have a vice president of innovation. I see the same thing with Babson, a VP of innovation, right? These are institutions that have kind of named that innovation and certainly an ASU, right? They've been doing that for a long time and, and it's been recognized as the most innovative university for years. So yeah, that, that's my encouragement. Uh, and to your I, point, I, yes, I, I mean, yeah. I completely agree with you, Brandon, that um, the examples we're talking about are opportunity driven innovation. And I think what, what it says is if you, if you, if, if people, if leaders can get out of the, the sort of the, the bubble that people push them into, which is you've got to do what you know what another elite institution is doing, and say let's back up and let's let's carve our own path. There's a lot of room for you. I mean, really. I mean, if I think about because and that's where that's my point is across history, that's where the big innovations have really taken place, not the ones that are driven off of fear. Although fear is you know is what gets the volume. It's what's, what becomes extraordinary is, is the opportunity driven. The only, I probably should say, but you know, arguably Southern New Hampshire emerged when Paula Blanc uh, took over a, an institution that was in trouble. You know, that was that, you know, its future was not assured and he was able to use that to do something quite special. So that's right. a, that's a, and I'll, I'll put it in the bucket. I, I don't want to, be quoted as saying that there was fear driven, but it, but if you put it in that bucket, you would say he used that crisis to build something special at that institution. But that's that's less uh, typical than um, uh, than what you find where you know it, the great institutions or the great leaders use opportunity. Right, and and you know maybe the hope is the stimulus of this. Uh, we've we've proven we can do it, meaning a big pivot because of the pandemic, right? Like everybody across higher ed is looking around, going, "Well, you know, if, if you had said how long would it be before every faculty member in higher ed teaches online? If you if I had asked you that question nine months ago, right, or any any of the prognosticators, like it would have been somewhere between never and like thirty years, right? 
yes, and yet it I... happened in three days. <laughs> and so, but, but the, the hope would be that even though there's a lot of reason to fear, you know, institutions who are really on the financial brink, right, major headwinds in higher ed, that, that you know, that, that, that stimulus, right, if it's transition into where are the opportunities, where can we go, um, you know, that, that I think I feel very optimistic for higher ed if people can start to shift their attention towards that, you know, looking on the horizon. And, um, you know, speaking of looking on the horizon, I, I think I, I know we've got a lot of Kaplan folks joining us today and a lot of folks who work with us across partner institutions here in the U.S. and around the world. I get the question a lot. I know you've gotten it, but um, maybe give us an update. You know, how, how's, how's Kaplan doing in the middle of, of the pandemic? And, uh, you know, what's, what's the latest on the Kaplan front? Uh, yeah, well, just in a, in a short period of time, I guess I, I would say Kaplan came into the pandemic with some big advantages and some real challenges. The advantages, you know, well, I'd, I'd say one big advantage is we've been in online um, education since the, the mid 90s. So there aren't a lot of organizations that have 25 years of experience at online education. And so, you know, people who, uh, you know, where students uh, no longer could go to a location, to one of our hundreds of locations around, you know, around the country and around the world, we were able to shift them to online in a way that I think students found uh, really effective, really powerful. And the, the number of students who stuck with us, I mean, we, we didn't really lose students. And in fact, we still have, you know, students in a lot of programs who, you know, they've now gone eight months you know, online when what they signed up for was an in-person experience, whether it's a higher ed experience or, you know, a professional experience or whatever it might be. And so, uh, we were really able to bring to bear all that experience in a way that helped us a tremendous amount. You know, the place where we've been challenged is that a big part of Kaplan, and not I think not everybody in the in the U.S. at least understands it, a big part of Kaplan is bringing students from one country to another to study. So we bring, you know, I think I, I think we bring more students into the U.S. to study than anyone else uh, in the world, into the U.K., into Australia, into Singapore. Um, into really most of the English-speaking countries in the world from China, Indonesia, uh, Saudi Arabia, Nigeria. Um, so uh, when, when all of that traffic stopped, that was, you know, that's been a challenge. Um, <laughs> so we have a, a program where we bring students for English language for, you know, for a few weeks or a couple of months. That's been, that, that business has been, been tough. Um, on the other hand, our pathway programs, where we're bringing students for degree programs with partner institutions, those students have tended to stick around because that's part of a life you know, plan for right. those students. So they, they're willing to wait it out online because they know the time will come when they can go, uh, go get their, their program. So it's been a mixed bag, but I feel like you know, um, overall the Kaplan, you know, here I'm gonna, I'm gonna say what a lot of companies Feel, but I, I definitely feel it. The Kaplan team really stepped up and protected our students, uh, protected the business, and you know I think I feel really good about how how Kaplan has responded to this and the kind of new opportunities they've emerged through you know exposure to this crisis. So you know so far so good on the Kaplan front. We still hope for yeah. a vaccine and just let's get back to normal. 
That's right. Yeah, everybody wants to wants to get back to that place. And uh, I know from my perspective, you know, I've I've, I've worked at, as a you know an entrepreneur and a startup, and you know, f- tiny, fragile uh, states of affairs. You know, when you're in the startup world, and um, you know, you think of startups as the place where innovation happens, and indeed, a lot does. But one of the things I've loved about my role at Kaplan is that you know we're we're inside a very well managed and financially stable organization all the way up through Graham Holdings in terms of how we think about it. And it's an organization that gives all of us that work for it the ability to think in decades, you know, not, not quarters or even uh, on an annual basis. And so, you know, that, that actually also leads to lots of innovation. And some of the things that I've been most excited about at Kaplan have been things that we've worked in supporting the innovation of university partners around. So there'll be a lot more about that that we'll have a chance to talk about um, I appreciate you coming on the show today. I think we can cancel our bi-weekly meeting because we I think we're all caught up. So, uh, you know, s- saving you time and energy on that front. Um, for those of you who are interested next week, uh, I'm going to have John Kroger, who just stepped down as the chief learning officer of the U.S. Navy, was also a former college president. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about a bunch of things next week. So please join us. Andy, once again, thank you so much for being on the show today. And uh, I will I will talk to you soon one way or the other, I'm sure. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate you having me. I look forward to seeing John Kroger next week.